This is my Bible. I believe it's God's word. I believe every word is true, and it is all that I need. Okay, last week it was very clear. I don't think uh, we could have seen it any clearer, the difference between the fruit of self and the fruit of the spirit. I mean, just such evidence in our character and in our actions. So, I mean, that chapter alone should, I mean, who do you want to be like? And there's, there's the big question. And, and it all has to do with where you fix your eyes, where you, where you make that choice and who your life is about. And, and it, it affects everything. And so then after last week, we read this. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death. This is now the time, the exact time. Remember before, these, these religious leaders were plotting. They were testing and trying to trick. And, and you know, Jesus would sometimes kind of get lost in the crowd because it wasn't time. Now it is time. It is time for Jesus to go to the cross. And so, again, they bound him and led him away. And, and they're thinking they're such big shots. They're thinking they're doing it all. And yet, this is, this is all a part of God's timetable. And he is just allowing. Last week when we saw, you know, the, the whole ordeal in, in Gethsemane. And when Jesus said, here you come with clubs and you come with swords. And, I mean, every day I was sitting there and you could have taken me. But now you're coming in with such violence and so now he's just handing himself over because the time is right. And then they hand him over to Pilate. And, and I think you probably know this already, is that the Jews cannot initiate someone's death. So they have to go to Rome. They've got to go to a, a Roman authority to, to have Jesus put to death. So that's why they go to Pilate, the governor. Now, just a little bit, I, I discovered from Pilate, I got to know him a little better. And he was, yeah, he was the governor, but did he live in Jerusalem? No, I mean, he wouldn't, he would never live in Jerusalem. Pilate lived in Caesarea, and he lived in a, in a palace on the Mediterranean. And it was, it was so part of his, this was the lowliest part of his job, having to come to Jerusalem. And he had to do that every now and then, especially at, at a, a popular time when there'd be a lot of people in the town. And he would periodically come because it was his job to either release or to condemn. And so that's why he was in Jerusalem during the Passover. Very convenient for them to bring him to Pilate because this was his job. And, and when Pilate did come, boy, he didn't just come incognito. He came on the white horse. He came in all pomp and circumstance. Everybody knew when the governor came to town. So he was very much into himself, and he loved his position. Okay, then we move. I mean, what a, what a difference. Now, now Matthew moves us to Judas. So when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. He said, I've sinned, for I've betrayed innocent blood. 
I know I've read this story just like you have so many times, but this particular study, this time that bothered me. And I don't know if it was because last week I was reminded because it got me last week when, when Judas went up to Jesus and said in the garden when he said, greetings, rabbi. Greetings, rabbi. It was like, you know, like nothing's a matter. Greetings, rabbi. So it started last week when I, when I saw that and heard that and I thought, man, what is he thinking and so then this week when it says, when all of a sudden he, he noticed that Jesus was condemned, I'm thinking, well, what did you think was going to happen when you had him arrested? When you said last week, will you give me? If I get him to you, what in the world are you thinking is going to happen to him? And I don't know, maybe this is a long shot, but Judas was so self-centered those whole three years. So he never, I mean, he saw the miracles, but he never saw the depth of the miracles, the reason for the miracles. All he saw was people's reaction when, when the miracles happened. And, oh, you know, he felt like, oh, you know, he was Mr. Cool Judas. You know, he was a part of this select group. And Jesus could do all these miracles and all, all these, and, and then he's feeling like, you know, again, Mr. Big Shot. Could it be that he thought, okay, I'm going to do this because obviously Jesus will never be condemned. He'll do some, some cafango miracle, and I'll just look all the better. Could he have just been that self-centered and deluded thinking that, oh, Jesus is going to get out of this, and we're all going to look, our, our, the little group is going to look so good. And, and all of a sudden, Jesus is condemned, and all of a sudden, he is starting to think, what did I do? You see the remorse. I mean, you even see the confession. He, he says, I have sinned. And I know that there's so many people that want to think that we're going to see Judas in heaven, but we're not. And the reason I am that sure, in case you just want more proof, is when Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, and he was interceding for his disciples. He first interceded in the chapter for himself, then he interceded for his disciples, and then he interceded later in the chapter for all of us. But when he interceded for his disciples, he talked about everyone, he said, except the son of perdition. So he knew that Judas was going to make his choice. And when Jesus said last week, go and do what you have to do. When Judas left, he made his choice. Now you say, yeah, but, but yet he confessed. He said, I have sinned. I have betrayed innocent blood. That sounds like, man, I'm sick to death about this. So there it is. Isn't that what we need? Confession and repentance? Yeah, but but look where he look where he told. Look who he went to for the confession and repentance. And actually, when when the Pharisees said to him, when he said, I've sinned, I've betrayed innocent blood, their reply was, What is that to us? I'm thinking to myself, what, what an outstanding picture for us to see. There isn't anybody else we can go to 
When, when, we want our, when we want forgiveness of our sins, where is the only place we can go for that? Who's the only one that can cover our sins with his blood? Jesus is the only one. So it wasn't that Judas didn't say the right words. He just went to people that can't do anything about it. They pretty much said it. What do you expect us to do? And for some reason, Judas could not, whether it was pride or whether it was self, his selfish heart, or whether he just could not do it, he would not go. He could have. He, he could have. But because Jesus knew way back, because Jesus knew before Judas was even born, before, before, before time even began, Jesus knew. But you know what? Jesus is so gracious. He gives everyone a choice. But you know what Jesus will always say with our choices? Huh, I can use that. Even our awful choices, God can use. But that doesn't get him off the hook. He went to the wrong person. And it was his choice. He could have and he should have gone to Jesus with his, I'm sorry, because we're going to see later in this chapter, even up to that last breath, there is an opportunity and there's a chance. And you know what he did with it? Then he went out and he hung himself. You know why? Because he didn't experience what it feels like to be forgiven. And when you aren't forgiven, when you carry that guilt and you carry that weight, that is a feeling that of hopelessness, despair, worthless. And all he could see then was, I got I to gotta end this. I cannot stand this. I can't feel that hopeless, that helpless feeling. I can't stand this. And the only thing he could see that he could do was hang himself to end this misery. Oh, I think I, every time I hear a report about teenagers or adults or whatever, and I, and I hear how the suicide rate is just going skyrocket. And I think it's the same thing. They get caught in the hopelessness and the helplessness and the worthlessness of themselves, and they, go, they don't go to the one that can give them hope and worth. And show them that he can wipe it clean and start all over. Because that's what he came to do for hopeless, worthless people. So that was, that was very, that's a visual. He threw his money on the, down and then he went and hanged himself. And the chief priest picked up those coins Oh, sure they did. They picked up those coins quick, and man, what do we do with this now? Of course, it's blood money, so we can't put it back in the treasury. You can just hear them. So they buy a field to bury foreigners in, and they call it the field of blood. Okay, now in the meantime, meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and Pilate just directly comes right out and says, Are you the king of the Jews? We talked about this last week. When Jesus was falsely accused, Jesus said nothing. But when it was asked, are you the Christ? Are you the son of God? 
He said, yes, I am, just as you said it. Today, Pilate says to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, yes, just as you said. Of course, here again, he's accused, he's falsely accused. And Pilate has a hard time understanding that. Why? Because he's, he's so self-orientated here. And so he knows that when you're being falsely accused... What is the natural human instinct when you are being falsely accused? Obviously, it's to defend yourself. And so when Jesus stayed silent, this was to great amazement to Pilate. Like, why in the world is he defending himself? Why in the world, when they were saying false things about him, he's not coming back? So Pilate is just, he's just kind of, I think he's just amazed. He's confused. He's just, this doesn't make sense to him. Now, one of the things that he does when he comes at this particular time is release a prisoner of the people's choice. Now, we, we know this story backwards and forwards, but, but look at this in verse 16. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner. A notorious prisoner. That means everybody knew him. Everybody knew what a bad egg he was. Everybody knew that he was a dangerous man. Everybody knew about him. So it wasn't that he was just some, some minor criminal, that he was a detriment to society. And when he was taken off the streets, I'm sure everybody slept better in their beds that night. That's how bad Barabbas was. And we have to know that because it just makes this even more severe. Which one of, well, of these do you want me to release? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? Because see, Pilate, Pilate knew, Pilate knew that it was out of envy. See, even Pilate was smart enough to, to figure out that this whole thing's a sham. The only reason they want to get rid of you is because you're a threat to their control and their popularity. So Pilate, he's sitting there, oh, in all of his pomp and circumstance, in the judge's seat. But while he's sitting there, he gets this message from his wife. I said to the men last night, and you should know better. We're smart. And we know, and you should listen. Because we happen to have some, we have, we, we have some uh, credibility. And, but in all seriousness, I mean, there was, there was another signal to Pilate. But the chief priests, boy, they had to be good at it. They, they got the people all riled up. See, so it wasn't just them anymore. It wasn't them just voicing. They got everybody worked up. They got all the crowd going. Oh, that had a, all of a sudden the noise level increased. Which of these two do you want me to release? Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is the Christ? Crucify him. 
Did any of you go back a couple weeks and, and picture the triumphant entry? <laughs> I know we talked about it then, but this time I'm thinking, same people. Can you imagine how crushing it was for Jesus to know that those voices yelling this were his people? The nation that was supposed to be the nation that not only brought him to this world to do his job, but then carry this gospel, this salvation message to the world. And they were shouting, crucify him. When Pilate saw that, he was getting nowhere, but instead an uproar was starting. He took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. Like that was magic water or something. He said, I am innocent of the man's blood. It is your responsibility. Verse 25, I hope that this chills you to the bone. Because when he said, I am, I, it is not my responsibility. I am innocent of this man's blood. And all the people answered, that's fine with us. We will take the responsibility. Now, it's one thing if you do it on yourself, but the audacity of them to say, and if you want to bring our kids into it, you blame them too. They're going to take on the responsibility. Who does that to their kids? Who puts this onto their children? Again, you have the choice for yourself, but to be able to say, go ahead and put it on my kids too. My mind went back to Herodias. Who in their right mind uses their daughter to kill John the Baptist? What mother does that? But what mother or dad does that? You talk about we need the fruit of the Spirit. Then we need God's Spirit work in our lives. Because I'll tell you, this is how ugly self can get when left undone with Jesus. So they released Barabbas, and they had Jesus flogged. I mean, last week we saw that they started spitting at him and they started hitting him with their fists and all that kind of thing and and even pulling out his hair. But now we really start to see. I mean, they strip him. They put a scarlet robe on him. They twist. Have you ever been pricked by a rose thorn? I mean, that, that thing hurts. One little thorn, if I'm trying to cut a stem or something, man, I jerk my hand and there's blood right away. Smarts. And I'm thinking, I have to think this way because I have to realize that this was not a minor thing. A whole ring of thorns. And knowing the way... These men were so abusive, they didn't just gently put that on there. They probably ground that in a little bit. Can't even fathom. Okay, so he's got the mockery going. They got the fake crown, the fake robe. They give him, they give him this staff they put in there. They put in his hand, and, and then they end up using that, that stick, that staff to beat him with. Oh, and then after they mock him, oh, hail, king of the Jews. 
then they then they take off those clothes. And I mean, that word stripped, I don't know about you, but to me, when you start taking off someone's clothes, I mean, in a public arena. I know we're living in a day and age where it seems like nobody cares anymore, but I still live in the old-fashioned world where I would like a turtleneck bathing suit if they made them. I mean, I... I, so that part gets to me. That gets to me. That humiliation of derobing in, in a public place. So they do it once to put all the garb on and then they take it off and then they put his clothes back on. I just, I can't even imagine. And then, of course, they now, he's now on his way to Calvary and we know the story of Simon and Serene came. And it helped him carry the cross. But again, remember, Jesus was not a weak man. You know who a weak man was? Was Pilate. I'm thinking about right now. I'm thinking, what is this man living with? Because he had four, he had four chances. Number one, he had a conscience. And in Romans 1, the apostle Paul says, hey, our conscience, you can say, oh, they don't have a conscience anymore. Oh, they do too. We've been created with a conscience. And he, that conscience told him that this man was innocent. Number two, he had a message from his wife. Number three, he had the authority. He had the authority to look at that crowd, even though, oh, yeah, they, they were really screaming and yelling and carrying on. But he was the governor, and he carried the authority. And he could have said, if you don't be quiet, I'll arrest you. This is an innocent man. But there's the weak. He let all that popularity, he let all that get to him. Number four. He had the Son of God standing right in front of him. And he too made his choice. There's a weak man. Jesus was not a weak man. The reason Jesus couldn't carry his cross is because he was beat to a pulp. I know it's gruesome to watch. Can hardly stand it. But do you know what? Even, even what we watched is nothing compared to the reality of what really happened. Because Isaiah said, you couldn't even recognize him. You're not even going to be able to know who he was. Looks so terrible. They beat him so bad. Of course, right before they, they nail him to the cross, they try to give him this wine mixed with gall because apparently the excruciating pain of a crucifixion, the little one ounce of mercy that they do have is try to numb the pain a little bit by giving them. But Jesus says, no, I want nothing of that because I am going to take this full strength all the way to the end. And there again, the hurling of the insults, I mean, it just didn't end. And then that, that word if, in verse 40, come down from the cross, if you are the son of God. To me, that had been worth, that had been worse than all the pain. Because he was, and he knew it. And boy, he could have called 12 legions, 10,000, I don't care what number you want, he could have. Okay, it wasn't just the Romans. It was the chief priests. It was the Jews. It was, they were all mocking him. 
And you know, they even talk about the two thieves. And even, again, even this is not coincidence. Even this, even though they don't understand why they put Jesus in the center. I mean, why was Jesus in the center? Why didn't they put one of the other thieves? I mean, they have no idea and they don't care who he is. So why, why is Jesus in the center? You talk about what a picture, about his teaching. What have we been learning in the last weeks? And some of Jesus' final teachings, what did he say? There's going to be a judgment. The wheat and the tares will be separated. On judgment, the sheep and the goats will be separated. The sheep will be on one side because they said yes. And the, the goats will be on the left because they, they chose to refuse. Even up to the end, that visual of Jesus saying, I'm in the middle, you got your choice. I'm here, I've done it all for you. Now what's it going to be? So even in that position, Jesus is still showing himself and giving even those two thieves opportunity. And we know, we know that the one did. Okay, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, from 12 noon to 3 o'clock, we know that darkness came over the land. Many of us growing up have learned what we call the Apostles' Creed. And we get to the point where it says, and he descended into hell. And that always leaves a question in my mind. I'm thinking, well, when did that actually happen? Did that happen when Jesus died and he, he was in hell for three days and then came out of hell to be raised from the dead? The more that I'm thinking about it, I think he experienced hell on the cross from 12 to 3. Because everything, remember when we did the lesson about heaven and hell? Remember we compared, we compared all of what heaven is, and then we went across the column to see the extreme difference. And I think everything that we compared really does say that Jesus experienced all of hell because it was dark. He was alone. He was insecure that, I guess, crucifixion is so excruciating that you feel like you're strangling, and so you keep trying to push yourself up, and you're always slipping. Remember? All of these things we said, that's what hell is going to be like. But the ultimate is the separation from God. That's the ultimate experience of hell is when you are separated from God. And so when he yelled out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Oh, he did experience hell. Every bit of it. Do you know that when he was on this earth, he talked and warned more about hell than he even did heaven. He talked more about hell than heaven because he wanted to make sure that people would believe that hell was a real place. Okay, when he, verse 50, when Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. There you go, gave up. And at that moment, 
now I know this story, you know this story. We even know the explanation of all, but I'll tell you, we have got to think about it. We have got to consider it. We have got to ponder it. When that curtain, when God ripped that curtain, and of course, every seamstress knows this isn't the way material goes. So when God started that rip from his point of view down to ours, that opened up the way, a way that no one could ever go before because in the Old Testament, we know that only once a year, the chief high priest could go into the Holy of Holies because that's where God was. And only he could go in once a year to take all the sins in there. And do you know that they, people on the outside, even put a rope around his ankle? Because if anything went wrong in there, he then would drop dead. And that was their way of pulling him out. That coming to God was just something so sacred and so, not that it isn't anymore, but nobody could ever do it before. And now God looked at his son and said, I accept your sacrifice. I accept your sacrifice. And what happened was he then opened the way because what we did this morning when we went with confidence and boldness right before his throne, it's because that, that curtain was tore by God himself, saying, you are welcome. Come with confidence before me. Oh, it's still holy. Don't get slipshod about it. Know that you're only there because I, I see you through the blood of my son. But then it said there was an earthquake and, and the rocks split and tombs broke open and bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and they went into town. Now, I wish I could explain that. I don't know that. I guess the only way that I can think about it is like, what do you think the people thought when Lazarus came out of that tomb? I bet there was a lot more believers that day. When Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. We had been in that day over the period of time that they knew that this was not a good thing. So again, you know, where was Lazarus' spirit during those times? I don't know. Where was Jesus' spirit during those three days? I don't know. These are things that I think are beyond our human brain comprehension, and we just have to let it go. But I do think that these holy people that were raised from the dead and went into town, I think there was a lot. Jesus was using this as more proof because look what they were starting to say, even the centurion. He was. He was. Okay, many women were watching. And, and the thing that I noticed, that two women that were watching, two women that watched Joseph take Jesus down from the cross and wrap him in the clean white linen, and, and they stood at the opposite end of the tomb. They, with their own eyes, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, they 
watched this happen. They watched Jesus come down from the tomb, wrapped in the linen. They saw Joseph put him in to the new tomb. They saw it. See, this is why there's, there, there can't be any doubt about this because next week, I couldn't help but peek. I didn't take the hallelujah out of the box, but I just had a peek because it was the same Mary Magdalene and the same Mary that comes to the tomb that were the first people that Jesus went to. Verse 61, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary sitting there opposite the tomb. They saw it. They were. And then we saw how at the very end of this chapter, did, did it get to you too when you read about that the Pharisees remembered what Jesus said? Huh. But if they didn't really believe anything about it, when they had gone to Pilate and said, you better seal it, you better put a guard there, you better... See, I don't really believe there's an atheist. I think they say it and talk big. Because we've been created with a need for him. He purposely created us like that. And even these men, they can deny it all they want. But down deep, I still think they thought, huh, Remember, he said he was going to rise. So Pilate says, okay, take a guard. All right, go to the tomb. Um, seal it with my seal. Did you smile a little bit, though, when you finished this? Because they were thinking, oh, good. Now we got the guard. We've got the seal of Pilate. Oh, yeah, it's all good. I couldn't help but smile to myself thinking, yeah, and you think that's going to stop him? Do you think that's going to stop God? It's the same kind of thing with Muslims and Islamics that have sealed up the Eastern Gate because down deep, I think they know too. And they're trying to keep Jesus out, trying to keep Jesus from going into that, into the city of Jerusalem. And my same response is, you think you can keep him out? In my final minute, I just want to go through those seven sayings of the cross. Think about it. If you knew that you were going to die within a couple minutes, don't you think that you had the energy to say a couple more things? Don't you think it would be profound and it would be worth it and it would be full of love and it would be what you want to be known for? I'm telling you, those seven last sayings of the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. Whether that be Jew or Roman, Father, forgive them. Truly, I say to you, today, you will be with me in paradise. When Jesus said, I don't care if people blast me up to their last moment. If they then come to me, I will forgive. The only sin that I won't forgive is the sin against God's spirit because they make that final no. When the Holy Spirit is saying, choose Jesus, he's your only hope, and they say no, that is an unpardonable sin. But up until then, truly today. Where is paradise? Can't explain that to you. 
All I know it's with him because he says, you'll be with me. And that should be enough for us. In John 19, he says, dear woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. I thought, hey, Jesus had other siblings. Why weren't they there? They probably still thought that Jesus was still a joke. And they probably almost, maybe there were some siblings that said good riddance. I don't know. But all I do know is Jesus is making sure we know what the family of God is like. And it's all about unconditional love. And he had a disciple named John who got what his love meant. John would, John is the one that called himself the disciple Jesus loved. Well, Jesus loved all 12 of them. But John understood that love. So he called himself the disciple Jesus loved. You and I should be saying the same thing. I'm the one he loves. Because I get this. Jesus opened. Remember when, when, they, when this mother and brothers came and Jesus said, well, who is my mother and my brothers? Remember? He was starting to open up the big family picture. He knew John would take care of his mom. I mean, it's endearment. But there's so much more. Matthew 27, Mark 15, my God, my God, why? Matthew 27, Mark 15, they both say it. He experienced every aspect of hell on the cross. John 19, I am thirsty. You know, what did he say to the woman at the well? If you drink of me, you will never thirst again. Jesus is the living water, and Jesus is saying, I am thirsty. Here he is, the living water, but he, at this point in his human nature, the way we know our human bodies, he is spent. He's at the end. He didn't have anything left to give. And then when he said, it is finished, three little words, but three little words changed everything for you and me. His, his mission was done. He did it. And the father accepted it. And then Luke 23 says, when he said, father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. I think that it had to have been the best part for him because he knew he was going back. He was going back to the place to be who he is, and that is the second person of the Godhead. But when his father asked him to do this, to buy you and I back, he was willing to do it. I tell you, those seven last saints, what a Savior. Have a good week, everybody.